The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will, re will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give unto you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So we remain standing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promise of joy. And we thank you for this assurance that when you return, there will be nothing more for us to ask of you. Our every need will be met. We thank you for this hope that we have in you, for the promise of your return, for the presence of your spirit now. Teach us. Fill us with your joy. Transform us as your people, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> a good thank you letter should be written in a certain way. At least that's what we think. It begins with the stationary, personalized cardstock or heavy linen paper, preferably embossed. Then there's the handwriting, neat, legible, never at an angle. Then there's the content of the letter itself. It must be heartfelt, personal, and ever so slightly effusive without being insincere. Good thank you letter should be written in a certain way, which is why we are surprised when we reach the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians and discover that it's a thank you letter. It doesn't fit the mold. It's too long, it's far too personal. And when Paul finally gets around to thanking them for their gift, he's hardly effusive. As it turns out, the Philippians had sent Paul a monetary gift. We know this, uh, we know from this letter and from 2 Corinthians chapter eight that the Philippians had been longtime supporters of Paul's missionary endeavors. So this gift wasn't unusual. But as we learn here in chapter 4, it had been a long time since they'd sent something to Paul. At last, with Epaphroditus, they've sent a gift. And this letter from Paul, carried back to Philippi by Epaphroditus, is in part a thank you note. Paul's thanks uh, takes up the second half of the final chapter of the letter, which Les read to us just a few moments ago. And I hope you'll turn there with me. It's on page 982 in the Red Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. This is our final Sunday looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, we've got a lot to cover. For that reason, we are not going to spend much time on Paul's thank you note in verses 10 to 20. It's not that this is unimportant. It's just that I have too much to say about verses 4 to 9. Before we turn our attention to those verses, four to nine, however, I want you to notice something about this thank you note. I want you to notice how thoughtful it is. 
It's obvious to us that Paul is being extremely careful with his words, but it's not immediately clear why. This portion of the letter, it sounds a little strange to us as a result. It is not a typical thank you note. Well, here's why. Paul lived in a society where the giving and receiving of monetary gifts carried with it a great deal of social and cultural baggage. There were endless ways in which Paul's financial needs could have complicated or even ruined his relationship with the Philippians. Mercifully, they hadn't. Instead, the giving and receiving of gifts in the context of their fellowship in Christ were an occasion of grace, both for Paul and for the Philippians. Paul's overwhelming concern, therefore, in this thank you section of the letter is to ensure that both he and the Philippians continue to understand generosity and need in the context of God's gracious love. This, I think, is a powerful reminder for us that all that we have and all that we need are in God's hands and that both are to be shared in this fellowship Well, this emphasis on God's gracious provision in all circumstances, it connects back to themes that Paul develops earlier in the chapter. And that's where I want to draw your attention now. So in verses 4 to 9, Paul begins to bring this letter to a close with a sequence of final reflections that build up to a crescendo in verse 9. He starts with a reminder. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, he's already given this command in chapter 3, verse 1, where he wrote, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Before that, he had mentioned his own joy and rejoicing several times. As it turns out, Paul refers to joy and rejoicing 14 times in this short letter, more times than in any other of his letters. Now, this is incredible when you think about the context in which Paul was writing. So remember, we learned in chapter 1 that Paul was writing from prison. Most likely he's in Rome, where he's been placed under house arrest, awaiting a ruling on charges brought against him that included the possibility of the death penalty. So Paul writes from a place of incredible uncertainty and confinement And one of the themes that dominates this letter from beginning to end is joy. It's astonishing. Now, clearly, there is something fundamentally different about Paul's joy. A former teacher of mine described this joy as tested and refined. It's the joy of a man who has weathered life's storms and experienced God's grace. It's the seasoned joy of a man who has learned to set his success and his suffering both under the sovereignty of God. I wonder if you know anyone who's like this. Someone who has seen great highs and desperate lows and regardless of circumstances is shaped by a sense of joy. Now, I don't mean, I do not mean the over-enthusiastic, superficial, happy face for Jesus kind of joy. 
I mean the steady, simmering joy of a man or woman in whose heart there is a fire that burns low and slow, warming their own soul and the souls of those around them. That's the kind of joy we're talking about. Now, I've known a few people like this, and I would love to be more like them. But how? Paul gives us some surprisingly practical instructions. And they begin in verse 4 when he writes twice, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So we, we tend to think more about joy than rejoicing. Joy is something that we feel, whereas rejoicing is something that we do. And we would far rather feel joy than practice rejoicing. But what if the secret to finding joy is the practice of rejoicing. Well, I think this is Paul's point. As one commentator writes, for Paul, joy is not a feeling, it is an activity. Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice, not just because God is worthy of our praise, but because Paul knows that it is through the practice of rejoicing that they will experience the fullness of God's joy. Okay, but what is, exactly does he mean by this? At its simplest, rejoicing means telling God how great he is. Through prayer, through song, through writing in a journal, we praise him for the glory of his creation, for his love for sinful human beings, for his goodness in sending Jesus and allowing him to bear our sin and shame on the cross. When we rejoice, we remind ourselves who God is, and what God has done. In order to do this, we have to turn our attention to God. And this has the distinct advantage of take, taking our attention off of ourselves, off of our trials, off of those things that trouble us. Rejoicing reorients us to a reality that is outside of ourselves. It reminds us of what is really real by setting our sights on God. So when we turn our attention to God, when we stop to consider his power, his grace, his kindness, his patience, his trustworthiness, we begin to shed our self-centeredness and our need to control everything. That's when we begin to see the world as it truly is with God at the center. And you know what happens? When we do this, we begin to calm down. So verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's a lousy translation. It should read, let your gentleness or forbearance be known to everyone. Now, this is really interesting because we tend to associate joy with exuberance, not with gentleness or tenderness. According to Paul, however, it is through our gentleness that other people experience our joy and I think that's because rejoicing by reminding us who's in charge calms our hearts. It takes our focus off of ourselves and it allows us to see the needs of those around us. Rejoicing takes the edge off of our angst. And Paul puts this in the form of a command in the next sentence. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
Now, there are many kinds of anxiety. I do not think that Paul is talking about the kind of anxiety, the extreme anxiety that some people experience and which we classify as a clinical condition. I think Paul is referring to the normal garden variety anxiety that we all experience at different times. See, anxiety is a part of life in a broken world. Back in chapter 2, verse 28, Paul referred to his own anxiety for the Philippians as a result of his love for them. Anxiety is an unavoidable consequence of being fallen, vulnerable creatures who care about each other. It affects all of us. Paul isn't saying that anxiety is a sin, but we all know this, anxiety can be a consequence of sin. Much of our anxiety results from our inability to trust God or our refusal to acknowledge that He is Lord over everything. And whatever the cause of our anxiety, Paul wants us to be free from it. I think it's worth saying that anxiety is not a virtue. Anxiety is not a virtue, but for some reason in our world today, anxiety, agitation, and anger have become a kind of virtuous trio. So every day, we get bombarded with the same basic message from countless forms of media, right, left, center, Christian, non-Christian, news media, social media, And though the specifics are constantly changing, the underlying message is the same, and it's this. If you aren't anxious about X and angry at Y, then you really don't care about Z. If you aren't anxious about climate change and angry at big oil, then you don't really care about the planet. If you aren't anxious about Donald Trump's power over the Republican Party and angry at his enablers, then you don't really care about the country. If you aren't anxious about critical race theory in our schools and angry at the school board, then you really don't care about your children. Now, my point has nothing to do with climate change, Donald Trump, or critical race theory. My point has to do with the ruthless logic of a fear-based society which insists that if you aren't anxious about X and angry about Y, then you really don't care about Z. Anxiety and anger, they are sometimes necessary, but they aren't virtues. They shouldn't be encouraged, nor should they be cultivated. The logic of our fear-based social discourse is a lie because beneath it is the belief that everything is up to us. God isn't really sovereign. Well, Paul's logic is fundamentally different. Remember his context. He's under house arrest, awaiting sentencing, possibly facing death. He has so much more to be anxious about than we do. And what does he say? Rejoice, be gentle, don't be anxious. But Paul, the world is dangerous. 
And it can be scary. Why shouldn't we be anxious? Well, he explains that we don't need to be anxious because the Lord is at hand. Now, I take this in two ways. First, it means that the Lord is nearby. He is actually with us. Through his Holy Spirit, he sits with us in the kitchen. He walks with us around the neighborhood. He watches over us when we're standing in the darkened doorway of our child's bedroom. He is our companion in every circumstance. So the Lord is at hand in a, in a spatial sense, but he's also at hand in a temporal sense. He is coming back to raise the dead, judge the wicked, and lead his people into the kingdom of heaven. The Lord is at hand in the sense that he's coming soon. We're nearly there. We've almost made it. All we need to do is put one foot in front of the other and trust him for the future. The sorrow, the suffering, and the worry will soon be over. God is our companion in this life, and he's coming soon to rescue us. Help is here, and help is on the way. And for this reason, we don't need to be shackled by anxiety. I don't think Paul means to say that we can be completely free from anxiety, not as long as we live in a fallen world, but we can be free from its control over us. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there because the world is broken and we are needy, we must pray. Seeking God's gracious intervention in our lives and in the world around us. So Paul continues, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But again, notice the sequence here. When we come into God's presence, it is human nature to lead with our needs because it is our needs that dominate our thoughts. But Paul leads with rejoicing. He invites us to reorient our outlook and reframe our concerns because God is sovereign over everything. Having been reset by rejoicing, we then turn to share our every need. Now, there's a very practical lesson in this sequence that I don't want you to miss. We mustn't wait until we feel joyful to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing leads to joy, not the other way around. And this means that rejoicing is something that we have to train ourselves to do. If you don't have a set-aside time for prayer each day, during which you rejoice in the Lord for who he is and all that he does, you'll never become a joyful person. It is as simple as that. Spontaneous prayer in the car won't cut it. The occasional outburst of praise over the beauty of a sunset, it's not enough to shape your outlook on life. We only experience joy when we are regularly being reoriented by the discipline of rejoicing. That's hard. It's hard because we live in this world that tells us to express our emotions and be true to ourselves, which often comes out as whining. Scripture, though, says that we need to train our emotions by being true to God. Joy is the fruit of this daily reorientation. 
the result of a daily walk with the Lord. It is, as Paul tells us in Galatians, a fruit of his spirit at work within us. And the good news here is that the fruit of rejoicing, it's not just joy, it's also peace. So Paul writes in verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now this verse is familiar to many of you, but have you ever considered what Paul's actually saying? He's not just talking about a feeling of peace, He's talking about the peace of God himself who stands as guardian over our hearts and minds when we seek him out in prayer. This peace surpasses all understanding in the sense that we can't get it on our own. It's not attainable other than through the presence of God as a gift from God. Like joy, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we receive from the hand of God. As Paul writes in verse 9, he is the God of peace. This means that neither peace nor joy are dependent on our circumstances. Paul picks up on this powerful truth in his meditation on contentment in the thank you note in verses 11 to 13. And he writes this. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, many of us have memorized that last phrase, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we think of it as the power to to do anything that we set our minds to. I don't think that is what Paul is saying here. He is not talking about unlimited human potential. Rather, I think he's talking about our unrestricted adaptability. As God's children, he gives us the strength to adapt to every conceivable circumstance, experiencing the miraculous contentment that comes from his presence. The secret to contentment is a life of rejoicing. And we're able to rejoice even in the worst of times because we rejoice not in our circumstances, but in the character and conduct of the God who never changes. When I pray, I thank God for the good things that he's given me. I thank him for the weather, for my health, for happy children, for a stable home, for hot water. And it's important for me to give thanks for these things because God has given them to me and it's vital for me to remember that. I need to cultivate a spirit of gratitude lest I take any of these things for granted. But that is not the same as rejoicing. Notice that all of the things I thank God for have to do with the circumstances of my life, my health, the happiness of my kids, the roof over my head, the hot water in my pipes. All of those things could change in an instant. My contentment, my peace, my joy can never come from the things for which I give thanks. It can only come 
from that which is unchanging, which is God himself. And for that reason, I've got to learn to rejoice. Paul ends this section with a very practical set of further instructions in verses 8 to 9. He writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The way in which we orient ourselves to the world has a lot to do with what we consume. If you have cable news running in the background all day, you will be shaped by the fear-based logic of a world assailed by exaggerated threats. If you are constantly scanning social media, you will be shaped by the envy-based logic of a world in which everyone else looks prettier and happier all the time. Paul invites us to turn our attention elsewhere. Take in the natural world in all of its beauty and grandeur and rejoice in the God who made it. Read great literature which ac accurately captures the complexity of our human condition. Listen to thoughtful podcasts and programming that wrestle with current events rather than skimming along the surface. Take a moment to sit and simply watch a child at play. Beauty matters. We are to pursue it and to enjoy it. Find godly role models whom you can admire and emulate them. Pour over scripture, meditate on it, memorize it. We need to learn to take in what we want to live out. There's so much more that I could say on this, but we need to finish. As he brings this letter to a close, Paul tells us twice to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and thereby reorient yourself to the world that he's made. Surrender your anxiety as you do. Remember that the Lord is at hand. He's next to you and he's coming soon to rescue you. Practice the art of contentment in every circumstance by walking with the God who is peace. Fill your hearts and minds with good and beautiful things. We do these things and, and do you know what happens? We become different people. And those around us, they take notice. There's an astonishing line at the very end of this letter. In verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul brought the joy peace and contentment of Christ all the way across the, the Mediterranean and he planted it in the belly of the beast in the household of Caesar those who lived there they saw that joy peace and contentment they admired it and they longed for it and some 
Some of them even came to experience it for themselves. Now that empire eventually fell, as all empires do. But the kingdom of God prevailed. And that was in no small part due to the fact that Paul had learned to rejoice in any and every circumstance. May we learn to rejoice as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are at hand, present here in our midst, and coming soon to rescue us fully. We thank you that because of this, anxiety need not rule our lives. That because of this, we can experience the peace of your presence, the contentment of your grace in any and every circumstance. Would you teach us to rejoice? Would you reorient us to the world around us? And in our rejoicing, would you draw those who do not know you into the beauty of a relationship with you? We pray this for their good, for our good, and for the good and glory of your name in this world. Amen.